This is Power Players with Dan Clark. This is a podcast interview with entrepreneur, businesswoman, philanthropist, Amy Reese Anderson. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and high-performance coach, where each week I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can tap into your personal power to become everything you were born to be. (laughs) Thanks for spending some time with me today. In this episode, Amy Reese Anderson, who founded her company, Reese Capital, and sold it for over $350 million, shares her life and climbed to the top of her industry, giving us an inside glimpse of how she ignited her passion, creativity, personality, and work ethic to innovate in such a unique way that allowed her to build her amazing company into an organization worth buying. Again, welcome. I can't wait to to kind of dive deeper into who you are, why you are, and investigate these three Ps that I've identified that make people power players. Are you ready to play? I'm ready. So when and how did you first identify your passion with high tech, with making a difference, with scaling your knowledge and your inspiration and your education. Talk to us about how did you find this unique passion, especially as a a woman in a so-called man's world? You know, I don't know that I started out with this passion in technology. It was really that I had passion for trying to support my two kids. You know, I was a single mom with two little kids and I had dropped out of college and was trying to figure out how do I support this family on my own. And I think that because I had had experiences in healthcare and I'd worked in healthcare as a young girl in high school and then out at college, um, it was just in a field that I kind of had this background and knowledge in and it became a passion because I think the more you do something and the more you do it well, the more passionate you become. The passion was really to put food on the table, right? That was kind of the goal. But I found that I had this really good talent for seeing a piece of software and knowing what it should look like, how it should function. And I learned how to design that. And that kind of led me to getting into the healthcare technology industry. But So teach us about what MetaConnect really is and uh, how come it scaled so quickly. How were you able to expand it so amazingly? Yeah, so MetaConnect Global was a health information exchange, which means we, our job was to go out and get medical data from where it existed, whether it's pharmacies, medical offices, hospitals, you name it. So we would go and gather all the medical data in whatever format it came in, transpose it into an actual electronic database, and then run analytics across it for everyone from life insurance companies, lawyers, and health insurance companies, and eventually to consumers. And so that was a company that we grew and sold in 2012. And how did you grow it? Did you, did you find the right people? Were you caught up in recruiting or did you find in a, at an early age the art of attraction? How did you find the right people to work in your passion that shared your passion? I think initially by making a lot of mistakes, right? Like you, you initially go into hiring and you think oh, I'm gonna hire for people's skills and then you kind of start to learn that it's more important to hire them for their values. Because you can teach people a skill, but it's really hard to teach somebody a value when you're trying to run a company and grow it. And so I kind of learned to morph my focus on who I went out and recruited. I went and looked for people that were hardworking, that had integrity, that were trustworthy, that would go the extra mile for people. Because if you find somebody like that, you're going to have a home run as a company no matter what you're doing, right? And so I was definitely blessed to be surrounded by a team of incredible people 
that the more I helped them to succeed, the more they wanted to help me succeed. And the more I was willing to be vulnerable and open as a, as a leader and say, hey, I don't have this all figured out. You know, I'm just trying to learn as I go here. Can you guys help me? The more people actually wanted to get on board and help me succeed, which was counterintuitive because most leaders have this pressure to feel like I have to know everything. I have to be perfect. I have to be the person that's the smartest in the room. And when I was young, I started that way, right? And I learned that is not the right approach because nobody wants to help you if you're a know-it-all. Nobody's excited to kind of give you input advice or attention if you're a know-it-all. They just, there's no value in that. And so I learned how to stop trying to be a know-it-all and then become the person that says, hey, I'm, I'm stressed or scared or this is hard for me, but I'm just trying to do the right things here. Help me to succeed. And people got behind me and helped me do that. It's unfortunate that we're not videotaping this podcast because I want the world to see how flawless you are. You're beautiful, you're drop-dead gorgeous, you're beautiful inside and out, which the podcast will reveal. But people in an audience would look at you and say, you don't get me, you've never failed, you've never even had a zit, you've never had your heart broken. <laughs> you know, talk to me, I can't relate. And perhaps the story is a lot different than that, that with your beautiful smile, you can literally smile away the pain. Wow. But please teach us what you did when you fell down. How did you respond with two kids? Don't just blaze over that and say, well, yeah, my passion was I had to feed my, my kids and so I started this company. Let's go back for a moment and talk about what prepared you to start this company, which allows you to segue into the third P, which is pursuing that passion, regardless of what happens to the economy and anything that happens in your life. Well, first of all, thank you. Those are very kind words. You just made my whole day, my whole month, frankly. But no, look, I've had all of those things, failure and, and heartbreak and all of those things have happened in my life. I think that, you know, growing up, I moved a lot. We, my, my dad was originally FBI. We moved from Oregon, Washington, Michigan, Virginia, Tennessee, Texas, California. We moved all over the country, right? And I think that- So maybe your name's not really Amy Resenter. <laughs> Are you on the witness protection program? Come on, I come I tell you, but then I'd have to, you know. <laughs> um, but the, the reality was, I think by moving so much, you know, you kind of have to learn how to start over again, over and over, right? Because you're moving. I went to four different high schools, for example. And as a kid, you can imagine how hard that is. And, and I think that for me, it was kind of learning to make friends again and start over, be the new kid, all those things. And it wasn't easy. That was kind of a hard challenge. And I had to learn that you had to be willing to be kind and friendly and open with people and that it was really on our own shoulders to connect with others, right? Not to wait for other people to reach out to us. And so I think where I hated that as a kid, right? Having to move as an adult, so grateful for that because those things I learned, and, and that, I think that's often the case. We learn some of our most valuable lessons by some of the hardest trials we have. And not saying that moving was the hardest trial. I'm saying that that's the kind of thing though where it, you kind of, it teaches you these skills that you end up using later in life and you look back and go, oh, that's why. That's why I had to go through that. And you know, when I came out to college, I was only 17 years old when I came out to go to BYU. And it was the first time I'd ever been away from my parents. So my dad and mom dropped me off and here I am. My dad hands me a checking account. It was the first time in my life I'd ever had a checkbook even, right? Like I'd grown up working in jobs since I was young, but my parents always took care of a lot of that stuff for me. So here I was bouncing so many checks. My freshman year of college, they actually had to fly my dad out to meet with the bank president because I wasn't <laughs> 18. And I just thought if there was paper in the checkbook, you could, like I was like, this is awesome, right? I just signed this away and handed it to someone. I can go buy shopping stuff. It was great. It wasn't intentional by any means, but it was just that tells you where I was at. You know, as this 17-year-old girl in college, I was clueless about a lot of things. 
And I, my, you know, I grew up with this mom with 10 kids that was a stay-at-home mom, and that was my goal. So when I came out to college, I didn't come out thinking, oh, I'm gonna go into business or get a degree. I came out and thought, I'm gonna get married to some gorgeous guy and have a big, huge family and be a stay-at-home mom. And that, that was really where I started from. And, and I did, I came out, I got married young, I had two little kids young, and then I ended up divorced. And it was not the game plan. Like you don't go into life thinking this is the plan, right? And so what I learned from all these different heartbreaks I went through was you you can sit there and, and cry about it and fall apart about it and just be miserable with life, but it doesn't change anything. Like your circumstances are what they are. So your choice is to fall apart and stay where you are or to get up and get moving. And I luckily had been raised to kind of believe that you, you know, the goal is to always be moving forward. So for me, it was like, okay, what do I do next? And someone gave me this awesome little poster that's been on my wall my whole life that says, everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. And that for me was the kind of thing to say, okay, life might suck today, right? <laughs> but tomorrow it's gonna be whatever I make it. So I, I just had been one of those people that believed that you just keep getting up and trying again. And I wasn't, you know, you asked about failures to me, I failed a million times in what the world would maybe say is a failure. But in my brain, it wasn't a failure because if I learned something, if I learned something that made me smarter the next time, I wouldn't repeat that same mistake again, then I, did, I considered it a mistake or a screw up, but it wasn't a failure. And so for me, I kind of defined it different in my head and that allowed me to try a whole bunch of things that I think otherwise I would have been afraid to try. Because so many people are afraid to fail. Like they're afraid of the embarrassment, what other people think. And you know, when you go from this situation where nothing in your life is the picture you would have painted and you have to kind of make something of it, you go, well, I gotta quit worrying about what other people think. I mean, I didn't fit any of the stereotypes. I was this young girl in a technology world and didn't even realize that women weren't in tech back then yeah. until I was at a trade show down in Vegas. It was the Comdex trade show and I'm walking the floor and I'm like, the only women in this, in this conference are the ones that were hired to work in the booths. There was, I was like, do women not do technology? Like, it was kind of like this dumb moment for me. Like, I didn't know. And I guess in a way it was good I was naive, right? Because it, it didn't hold me back. You know, Absolutely. I never thought of there being a glass ceiling. I never thought of the fact that, oh, you should think of yourself as disadvantaged because you're a woman in business. I never thought of that. And, and I credit my parents for raising me, you know, especially a strong father that never acted like I should think I was less. So I just, I didn't, you know, and, and those, that kind of courage gave me a kind of platform to plow ahead and not be so worried about what other people thought or if I was going to make a mistake. It let me kind of go, okay, as long as I grow from it, that's okay. So what you just taught the world is that if you learn, you never lose. Correct. And, and don't make the same mistake twice, because that's just dumb. I mean, it's like, make a bunch of them once, fine. One of my favorite quotes <laughs> that recurs in podcast after podcast is that pain is a signal to grow, not to suffer. Once you learn the lesson the pain teaches you, the pain goes away. So in life, there's no mistakes, only yes, lessons. exactly. Okay, so I've, I've told you this a couple of times in different galas and different events that you and I have attended that as a professional speaker in the Hall of Fame, I've discovered that a woman, a man can be a role model only to a man, mm -hmm. but a woman can be a role model to both a man and a woman because you can get men to do things that other men can't get us to do. So the question is, my friend, who in your past inspired you to believe that you could start your own business as a woman in a glass ceiling men's world that you didn't acknowledge, but still exists in the minds of so many other women? You know, I think part of it was, I, I, everyone says, oh, you must be really risky because you were an entrepreneur. Actually, it was really risk adverse. But I think what's true of most entrepreneurs is in their brain, they actually think that they're less of a risk. To bank on themselves is less of a risk than to bank on somebody else. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, so for me, I was working in these jobs in healthcare and I had this knowledge of the industry 
And one day someone came in to sell software to, our, to the office I was running. And I remember thinking, I could do that, right? And then as I started to understand the technology world and learn software, and I, was, I started drawing pictures of things of what software should look like. And it's, it's an area where I actually think women, we need so many more women in that field because mm. for men, when it comes to designing systems, they think function. If I push a button, does it do what it's supposed to do? For a woman, we think, how did it feel when I pushed that button? Was it a good experience or was it a bad experience? Did I like that I had to click this button to get to that button? Do you see what I'm trying to say? Uh, and so it. as a woman, it's like it helped me kind of think about the user experience, the user feeling, and I think it gives women a little bit of a kind of an, an edge when it comes to designing, and yet we don't attract enough young women into that field today, which I think is a shame because it's, it's a talent that they naturally kind of gravitate toward. Um, but I think that as I started to see that I could do these things, right? And, and it was funny because I, I didn't set out to actually design my own software. I was originally selling someone else's software with my own company. And it was because of a, what you could find as a failure. We had a, a deal cut with a, the parent company that we were going to actually take over developing their software. They would still own it, but I was going to take over designing. And would have, they, in the end, would have owned all the intellectual property, right? So it would have been, but for me, that was like, that's okay. I don't care. I just want it to be, look how a certain way. And right before we were supposed to go and ink that deal, their company had merged with another company and the FBI had come in and actually taken their office over and there had been some falsification they'd done in this big public traded deal. And my deal blew up. I mean, it was like, I couldn't, I was, no, I was getting in that office, right? Like to sign a contract with somebody. And I remember gathering the employees together and we all kind of looked at each other and here I had hired everybody. We were teed up for this, this development project and now there was no money coming, right? And one of the employees got quiet and said, well, there's always failure. And everybody just started to laugh. I, I, it was kind of this thing like, oh yeah, they're right, there's failure. Well, let's, we fail, what? Okay, so we have to go get a job, who cares? We can go do, do the Wendy's drive-through if we need to. We can all get jobs doing something, right? We can survive, we can live. So let's just try. So that's what kind of led me to start designing systems and software on my own and owning the intellectual property myself. So. It so, kind of is, the, is the negative things that push you sometimes I into trying it. things you never would have been courageous enough Sigmund to Sigmund Freud's famous law of sublimation where failure and anger hold people back and, and push people down. He says, use them as a motivator. When someone says, Amy, you can't, you say, oh yeah, watch me. Yeah. And that's one of the inspirational, I think, ingredients of what it takes to really be a, a power player and remain a power player. So no matter what your past has been, you have a spotless future, bring it on. Yeah. It doesn't matter, the systems remain. So let's talk about love. When did you realize that you could fall in love again? Um, I think it took me a while. You know, I went through kind of a harsh situation. And so it, I was single for many years almost. I think like eight to 10 years of being single in between getting married again. And I was so busy. I mean, I was busy. I was running this company. We were growing like crazy. We had offices in different countries. I mean, it was, it was a lot, right? To have just handling that and two little kids and trying not to feel like a total failure in motherhood, right? Because you're, you're guilty when you're at work that you're not home and you're guilty at home that you're not at work and you feel like you're letting everybody down everywhere. And so it wasn't so much the focus for me for a long time. And it was, it's actually, so my dad was leaving to go to Africa. And I have to kind of back up on this part of the story. I, when I was young, I made a goal poster, okay? And it was probably because I was just desperate, like I needed something to think was positive in my life at the time when everything fell apart. So I made this goal poster and hung it on the wall. And, and this goal poster over the next eight years, like everything on that poster had come about. And I was like, wow, that's, that's crazy, but it's probably a coincidence. Well, then my dad said, we were leaving to go to Africa. So for our church, they were gonna go serve in the temple there in Africa where he would perform weddings, right, for people. 
um, and ceilings in our in our church. So he actually said, well, you should come out to Africa and get married when we're living out there. And I said, that'd be awesome, Dad, but I don't even have a boyfriend, so that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> and he gave me a picture of the Ghana temple, right, where they were going to be. And so I, I thought, well, what the heck? So I just threw it on the poster, right? Well, within a year, I was actually in Africa getting married to my husband, an amazing guy from Idaho. And for the ladies out there listening, if you're married an Idaho farm boy, totally seal the deal because those guys are awesome. So. And I vouch for that. He is a, he's the real deal. He is the real deal. We and, have so much fun. You know, and it's just, he's just a good guy, right? And it, and it was amazing to, and after that Africa trip, by the way, once that happened, I was like, okay, maybe the gold poster thing is really real, so let's make a bigger poster. <laughs> and so I did, and I've made posters throughout my whole life that have actually kind of everything on those posters have come about. There's something, I don't know how to explain it from a scientific perspective, but I can tell you that anything that you put on a poster and you can visualize, it's it's almost like a foregone conclusion it happens and that's what's happened in my life and so i think that that kind of push from my dad gave me some courage to go back out and okay so let's philosophize here for a moment my friend so like we said at the very beginning we're focusing in on never changing truths that apply to every aspect of our lives and if they don't apply to every aspect of our lives they're not real irrefutable truths And if we do obey them, if we do identify them, we can be a power player in every aspect of our lives. Would we agree? Yes. Okay, so as we wind down our time together, let's let's dive deep. Let's focus in on one or two ingredients that you think are required for you to be a a successful mother, successful Mm -hmm. wife, to find love, true love, to be a successful business professional, something that that transcends gender, that transcends time, that has helped you remain relevant as a power player now that you've sold your company for 377. Mm -hmm. And that's with a big M million, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) And yet she's still as humble, still involved and engaged in philanthropy nationwide, internationally. So to put you on the spot, let's let's just take a second. I think the podcast uh, audience really would wanna know if you can help us hone in on one or two things that you think apply across the board in our personal and professional lives that that make us a power player and keep us a power player? Yeah, Um, I think number one without question is integrity. Hmm. I think that integrity is the most valuable asset any one of us has. It's it's not just valuable from a like moral perspective or, or you know those kind of things like a religious perspective. It's it's valuable from a financial perspective. It, it's financially the most valuable thing you have because when people know that your word is your bond, and they know you're trustworthy, it brings business deals. It brings new clientele. It brings an expanded customer base. It brings investors to the table. It, I mean, it really is the one thing that, you know, I believe success will come and go, but integrity is forever. I love and, it. And you know, in our company, we, we wrote right on the wall, do what's right. And then we actually added, let the consequence follow. And <laughs> yeah, the reason we did is because doing what's right, you can so easily talk yourself into doing the wrong thing when you start to get into the, the heat of the battle, right? Like you're trying to grow the company and somebody else is, is lying on their RFP, the, the request for proposal to get new business. And you're like, oh, we can't let them win by lying. So we have to lie. You know what I mean? You start uh, to talk yourself it. into these things and you're like, oh, we can't tell the customer we made this mistake because then they might pull their business and then I'd have to lay these people off that are working for me, that are good people, that don't deserve that. Like you can play so many games to convince yourself it's okay to do the wrong thing thinking it's for the right reason. And so we put let the consequence follow to remind ourselves that we were gonna do the right thing all the time, even if it meant the company would fail, even if it meant we would lose business or have to lay people off or whatever it was, we were gonna upfront give ourselves permission to do that. And I believe that 
was probably the biggest key to our success. And I think it's the key to success in life, period. I think that's the one area you don't want to make mistakes on as you're Okay, I love it. So still true to the question, but now to the final question. Yeah. So I still want you to hone in on one consolidated message. And I always tie into Professor Randy Powell. She's the one that, that coined the phrase last lecture as he was yeah. battling cancer yeah. and recorded a final yeah, examination. So if you had one last lecture to give, back to the question, what one or two things do you believe, qualities, character traits, attributes, do you think apply across the board, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> as personal, in a personal and professional way? What's your, what's your one message to the world, Amy Reese Anderson? If you died tomorrow, how do you, what, what are you saying to the world? What are you saying to young girls? What are you saying to young men? Yeah. What are you saying to, to the world? I'd say don't limit the picture in your head because I think what God intends your life to be is a masterpiece. And I think that we're capable of so much more than we ever would guess that we are. I mean, I was this girl that was a dropout from college that couldn't balance a checkbook, that you know, all these things in my life were wrong. And yet I went on to grow and build companies and sell one for $377 million, right? Like if I can do what I did, there's no way I would have seen myself as that. I guarantee my parents didn't see me as that <laughs> back then, the girl that could do those things and then kind of become successful and, and be a good leader and, and you know at least try to be a good leader and to you know be an author and to write a book and have it out there. Like these things that I've accomplished and the way I've been able to give back, like I never would have thought I could be that. And so it's taught me not to limit what you think of yourself and to, to put yourself in the running and try because you know, even if you don't get chosen, you're going to get noticed and life is going to change and, and every bad thing that you go through is going to lead you to the next good thing. So to just keep moving forward, don't give up on things and don't limit who you can be. And when you get to success in your life, use it to do something good. Like use it to give back and to help other people around you because that's, you know, you're going to die and pass on from this life and the only thing you're going to take with you is what you did to help change the lives of others that were here. And the money won't matter, the title won't matter, the, you mentioned the humility thing, it's because I, I just don't think God's gonna give a rat's tail, you know, how much money I made, he's gonna care what did I do for the people around me, how did I improve their lives, how did I make myself a better person and, and impact my children and my grandchildren, which is the greatest joy of all, right? And so I just think that's the kind of things to measure your life on. I love you, you know that, I love your family. You did marry a good one, your, your man's a stud muffin hunk of burn of <laughs> if, uh, I have two if amazing kids, by the you way, do, you married, do. and I have two darling grandchildren. And it's like always fun to see ever. you. And, and as Amy and I were talking before the recording began, you know, we take a lot of pride in trying to make a difference. And every single time that we go out of our way to participate in a great cause or do something noble for our community, it's no surprise that we run into Amy Reese Anderson <laughs> and your family because we really do become the average of the five people we associate with the most. You're an extraordinary human being. It's an honor to call you friend. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> this is more than a cough. I'm choking up because she's so <laughs> wonderful. But if you want to get in touch with Amy, I challenge you to uh, locate me on danclark.com, my website, and I will tune you into Amy's amazing blog, which is worthy of your reading and spending time on. We have Amy Reese Anderson, Thank you so much and to my final and famous close. So remember, when you finally decide to be a power player, your power play begins in you. So until next time, quantify your takeaway and go make a power play. <laughs> Have a great day. We love you, Amy Reese Anderson, and thanks for joining us today.
The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.